He would write down everything he collected. And at the end of the war, his wife wrote in red sometimes, missing. So in front of the chipolo that was written with the handwriting of my great-grandmother, missing. I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Yesterday, a sumptuous portrait of a woman with a confident regard and rouged cheeks, porcelain skin, and a powdered updo reminiscent of Cool Whip hit the block at Sotheby's Auction House. Titled Portrait of a Lady as Pomona by the 18th century French artist Nicolas de la Guerre, the painting was less notable as a market event than for what its sale meant to its sellers, the sellers in this case being the 20 heirs of Jules Strauss, a pioneering German art collector. In 2014, one of his great-granddaughters, Pauline Baer de Perignon, began investigating the fate of his beloved artworks during World War II, including pieces by the likes of Renoir, Monet, Degas, and Tiepolo. As a Jew living in Paris, Jules Strauss, like so many others of his religion, faced persecution under the German occupation. While he avoided deportation, Strauss was forced to hand over a still unknown number of works to the Nazis, an ugly truth that Pauline's family chose to forget for decades. Lady as Pomona, it so happens, is the first painting from his collection to be restituted to the family. And that's thanks in large part to the tireless efforts of Pauline, detailed in her new book, The Vanished Collection. In the run-up to this week's auction, we were pleased to welcome Pauline to the Art Angle to talk to Artnet News senior writer Sarah Casconi about the challenges of tracking down looted art sifting through archival records and what the quest for restitution and justice means to the families of those who lost everything during the Holocaust. I hope you enjoy their conversation. Hi, Pauline. Welcome to the Art Angle. We're so happy to have you on the show today. Hi, Sarah. It's so nice to be on the show. Thanks a lot for inviting me. Well, I'd love to just dive right in and talk about your book, The Vanished Collection. It's kind of a restitution story, but it's also very much about you rediscovering your family history. So I thought we could start by you telling me about what you knew about your great-grandfather, Jules Strauss, when you were growing up. Well, I knew almost nothing, but I wasn't wondering who he was. I wasn't very curious about him because in my family, we didn't talk about him at all. All I knew, he was a collector, he was German, living in France. He had a few paintings, and I heard, but I wasn't so sure that he had Impressionist paintings. I'm a bit ashamed to say that I was old. And so you've obviously learned a lot more about him since you've been working on this book. Can you tell us how did Jules come to collect art, and who are some of the artists in his collection? What did his home look like? Kind of set the scene. Yes, I, I will try to do so. So he left Germany when he was 20. He worked in a bank and very early started collecting Impressionists. You know, he was one of the first collectors who got interested in Impressionists like Degas, Monet, Renoir. And he started a collection. And at the age of 40, he had this big sale where he sold like 20 Sisley and he became well known because of this sale. As Mr. Sislev, some people called him after the sale, he kept on collecting different things. He was a collector that has been called a horizontal 
collector because he was interested in a lot of different things. He had also a collection of 17th and 18th century European paintings. He was a donator for several museums like the Louvre and Carnavale. He was uh, very fond of living uh, with his artworks and paintings. He was not the kind of collector who hides things. He would buy things every day and sometimes he had to hide them from his wife. He didn't want to say he was buying so much. <laughs> In 1932, he had to give away a lot of his collection, actually, of Impressionists, because his family uh, got bankrupt because of the 29 uh, crisis. So it was a big event, a big sale. And after that, he was quite old. He kept buying 18th and 17th century a little bit, but then he died in 1943. And what I discovered recently, and the subject of my book, is that he has been looted because he was Jewish. So not all his collection was sold, but he's been looted too during the World War II. And it was a chance meeting back in 2014 with one of your cousins that first alerted you to the fact that some of your family's art might have been stolen and that there was more to the story than your family had ever really told you about or would speak about. What set you on the path to write The Vanished Collection? Well, that's really a coincidence, but now I know that coincidences don't really exist. So when I was in my 40s, I met again a cousin I hadn't seen for 20 years. And he told me in the middle of a Brazilian concert, out of the blue, he told me, oh, you know, our great-grandfather, Jules I think he may have been looted during the war. And, um, you know, this cousin works at Sotheby's, so... I thought, oh, he must know what he's talking about. And I was a bit puzzled and overwhelmed because I never had the thought, which is a bit naive, that as he was Jewish, my great-grandfather must have been looted. It was in a way logical, but these thoughts never came to my mind. A few days later, I decided to get to know more about this. And I went to Sotheby's and, and I met my cousin again. I said, what did you say in this concert? Did I hear properly? Can you repeat, please? And say, yes, 10 Impressionist paintings went missing. And I think they have been looted. So this is the beginning of a difficult search for me because I knew nothing about art, nothing about history, and nothing about my family. So I had to research and investigate everything in the same time. Wow. And so he started you off. He had a list of 10 paintings that he was suspicious about. How did he come to find that list? And what did you kind of learn when you started with those 10? I didn't know where he found the list. So I was a bit curious and I had to investigate my own way because he didn't have much time to explain things to me. And he knew the collection way better than I did. So I went to the archives of a lady. I don't know if you heard about her. Have you seen the movie Monument Man? So it's in this movie. They talk about Rose Ballon. It's the lady during the war. A lot of Jewish paintings that had been looted went to a place called Jeu de Paume, facing the Louvre. And that's where Goering would choose for him or for Hitler the paintings he liked most. And there, in this place, there was a brilliant and very heroic lady 
she pretended not to speak German and she wrote down on a notebook all the paintings that were sent to Germany that were looted. And thanks to her, we were able to find them and get them back and to know whom they belong to, these paintings, after the war. So this list and the archives of this lady, they are nowadays somewhere in Paris, in the Courneuve, in the suburbs of Paris, and everybody can look at them. And in these archives, I found a claim from my family saying that they were looted during the war. They were looted in a storage where they put their furniture. You're talking about how you found out Jules's wife, your great-grandmother, Marie-Louise, had put in a claim for restitution of property that had been stolen from her. How surprised were you to find that she had done this? And why was she unsuccessful? I was very surprised because no one had ever told me about this. It was completely new to me. And so uh, I put myself in her shoes. I imagine she had lost her husband, her son before the war, and she was alone trying to get her furniture and collection back after the war. And I found it a bit sad. Maybe she got back a few chairs or tapestry. You know, she didn't really know all her husband had. As I said in the beginning, he didn't tell her everything about his collection or she didn't know everything and she didn't get back all of her stuff. Obviously, going back so many years, so many decades, this is before computer, before the internet, before digitization. What is it like to try to investigate and find the right archives, find the right documents, find the right records? How do you even start something like that? You start with internet. You know, I found the Largelière painting like that, for example, just on Google. But you ask for help, obviously. I just saw a documentary with someone who's a professional in a research provenance. And I sent her a mail and she told me, follow me into the archives. So these people are really generous. When they see that you really want to know and you are the family of people who have been looted, they help you. If you don't get this help, it's quite difficult because there are a few different places where you should go. There's not only one place with all the archives. So it's rather difficult, but I was really driven by a will to understand what happened. And people ask me, what can I do if I want to know more about my family story? And I say, it seems obvious, but people forget. Please ask more your grandparents, your great uncle. Ask and ask everybody because they may say, I don't know. I don't remember. I don't keep anything. They always have a few letters left. They always have a memory that sometimes it seems not important for them, but it's essential. You know, my great aunt. She helped me a lot. She's uh, still alive. She's 96. And she was 14 at the beginning of the war. So she repeats, oh, I don't remember. I was too young. But she told me the other day, yes, we had a lawyer that helped us uh, with the German government trying to get things back. So people, they always remember something. So I think that's the first thing to do. And then... When you're doing research outside of the family, what were some of the obstacles that you encountered trying to access physically old records? Are these things usually in public collections? Are they well organized? Like, does the old handwriting make it really hard to decipher? How many languages are you going to encounter when you're looking for provenance records? I found almost everything in France. 
but uh, I tried to go to Germany because I was looking for uh, proof of uh, that something had been looted. And I knew that German soldiers were very organized. So I thought that maybe I could find in administrative papers a proof. But when I arrived there, I discovered that not everything was in English. So I felt completely bugged because I don't speak German. I found a um, student that I employed for a couple of days. And he was brilliant, actually. He helped me a lot within these archives. You have to go everywhere and to try everything. But you can start with internet because a lot of archives have very good websites to start with. And the people are very helpful. They give you appointment, they give you information, they give you insights in the way their archives work. So it's not easy, but it can be done. <laughs> How many different libraries and archives did you go visit? during this process? I would say 20 of them. The archives of the Musée d'Orsay were very helpful because the librarian, she was very, very helpful. It really depends on human relationship, actually. I realize now that having a good relationship to the librarian, archive people changes everything because they want to help you. They spend time. Some are really dedicated to looted stories and art. I went even to the archives of a museum to find archive of an old exhibition in 1937. It's important even to look at the archives of the old exhibitions so you can find out, you can prove, ah, it's my great-grandfather who gave this painting for this exhibition. It means that he had it in 1937, for example, just before the war. So you have to look everywhere. How expensive is it to conduct this type of research if a family is interested in seeking restitution? Obviously, it'll be time-consuming. Will it also be expensive to go about doing that? To be honest, for me, it was more time-consuming than expensive. The only uh, expensive thing was at the very end of my claim to Germany when I found this Largillière in a museum in Dresden. I knew that at the end, I needed a lawyer because it was only legal documents and it was too much for me. I had done all the research, but I needed some help. So this was a little bit expensive. People say you can do it without legal help, but I'm afraid when you have a museum on the other side, it's easier to have a lawyer. Did the family all chip in to help pay for the lawyer? or? Yes, they said they would help me. One of the things that I was most curious about, you mentioned that your cousin who kind of set you on this journey, your cousin Andrew worked at Sotheby's and his father, Michelle, also worked there for many years. Michelle actually, during his career at different points, helped sell paintings that had once belonged to Jules. I'm wondering why they didn't follow up and they didn't try to find out what happened Yes, it's a good question. I asked myself and I told Michelle, who unfortunately just passed away a few months ago. Um, and I'm so sorry. Thank you. I told him, but how did it feel? He said, you know, we had absolutely no idea it could have been stolen. The family never said anything. So maybe he was a bit moved to see the paintings that once belonged to his grandfather, but he never was suspicious. And it's true. I mean, I really believe him because there was really some kind of denial of what happened in the family. Why do you think that your family did forget this part of its history? 
it was a bit painful, first of all, of course, to have been looted. There was some kind of shame, uh, maybe a resentment, and not wanting to stay on this bad feeling that could be a bit humiliating. Uh, they preferred to fight, I think. My father and his cousins, they were in the force de l'armée française, which was more an active way of fighting rather than doing claims and claims. And, you know, I think it's a matter of attitude towards what's happened to you. But in this denial, what I regret is that they forgot the nice things too. I mean, they never talked about the collection, about the nice paintings, about the taste of my great-grandfather. So they forgot the looting part, but they forgot also the collections and the nice part of the history. Wow. When you were kind of digging up all of this information and uncovering the truth of what happened, were people upset? No, not at all. But I understood very soon that I had to do it with respect to the family and not to judge the history as well, like the mean Nazis, what they've done to my family, and not to judge my family, which story was not mine. They were born before me and nearer to the war and to the tragedy. So I tried to stay peaceful, modest when I asked them questions. I didn't want to hurt them either. I wouldn't say, uh, so why did you tell me the truth? Why didn't you do anything after the war? Why didn't you try to get the things back? You know, I couldn't be aggressive. I had to respect everyone so they could feel I wasn't there to judge them, but to seek the truth. And as your investigation continued, you actually did finally, in 2017, you were able to secure the restitution of the first piece from your great-grandfather's collection, which was a a lovely Tiepolo drawing of a shepherd that was at the Louvre. How did your great-grandfather come to lose that painting, and how did you prove that it was looted? Well, it was already in a part of the collection that is called MMR. It means that after the war, uh, looted paintings came back from Germany and the government decided that while they couldn't give them back, they would become part of the collection, but not belonging to the museums. So the Louvre already knew it had been looted. So there was no discussion. The only discussion was who did it belong to? So I found on their website that the last known collector of this drawing was Mr. Strauss. So it could have been another Strauss, but Jules was really very well known. He had his name written on the wall of the donators at the Louvre. So I was a bit surprised that he didn't investigate a bit more in 75 years. So I decided to find the proof that it was Mr. Jules Strauss, and it was very easy to find. My uncle gave me the notebooks of Jules. He would write down everything he collected. And at the end of the war, his wife wrote in red sometimes, missing. So in front of the Tiepolo, there was written with the handwriting of my great-grandmother, missing. So I did show this to the Louvre. 
I proved it was really my great-grandfather who had this painting before the war. I found who took it during the war. It was an art dealer that was, we call that red flag name. Red flag name is someone that took benefit of the war to make money and sell to the Germans much more expensive than he bought or stole. So all these elements, the person who got it, the fact that it was already considered as looted art, the notebook of my great-grandfather, this was why they gave it back. Reading the book, it seemed to me so unbelievable that this Tiepolo artwork is one of over 2,000 works that France knows is looted, and it doesn't seem like they're doing much to identify the owners, especially in this case. Not only did it say that it belonged to Mr. Strauss, it seems to me like they should have known because of the close relationship that Jules had with the Louvre. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about his connection to the museum and everything that he had done in his legacy that continues there today. It's true. I was really a bit shocked too because I found in the archives a few letters between uh, Jules and um, the director of the Louvre between the Second World War. He said, oh, thank you very much for your contribution. And I discovered that he gave 60 frames to the Louvre Museum just because he thought that the paintings didn't have a nice frame. Because before the 30s, all the paintings had the same frame. And my great-grandfather said they must have something related to their country, to their story, to their time in history. So he offered frames. I know he went quite often because he found a frame. He wanted to check that it would fit. So it seems a bit unbelievable that he would do that nowadays. Nobody would do that. But he came with someone holding a frame and they would check if it fitted to the Leonardo da Vinci, for example, or Raphael, or very well-known paintings. I didn't go to check. I thought it was not very interesting to see frames. But finally, I went there. I understood that it's quite moving because nobody knows he gave them. It's not written anywhere. But still, he remains there. And millions of tourists will see these frames because it's next to the La Joconde, for example. For example, the frame of La Belle Ferronnière that has been shown at the last Leonardo da Vinci exhibition was given by him. And I thought it's quite something to have a modest signature in the Louvre Museum. That really seems like his work with the frames and his vision for that really has shaped the way that we look at so many old masters. That aesthetic, the way we think of them, is shaped by his vision. It's really amazing. Yes, really. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> so... After you got the Tiepolo drawing back in 2017, what did the family decide to do with it? We were 12 air. So either one could buy it back from the others, which unfortunately was not my case. We couldn't share it, so we had to sell it. Okay. And did you sell it at, at auction? No, uh, private sale. It was a bit sad when you tried to find back for years to sell it, but I don't feel the choice for the moment. And I, I don't like it because when people ask you, sometimes you can feel a little anti-Semitism, you know? Like, oh, okay, what's the use of giving it back if you sell it afterwards? But I would answer just that 
it didn't belong to the Louvre. It's been stolen, so there's no question, uh, you know, it's private matter. Right. Yeah, well, I'm sorry you weren't able to keep it in the family. I, I know how much these works mean to you, and I know that it's so complicated with a large family, you know, with so many people involved. It's important, and it's also very important that during the ceremony, the French Ministry of Culture did a nice speech, a tribute to Jules Strauss, and acknowledged that he had suffered from persecution and that he had been looted. And all this is very important too. This was important for the eldest people of my family who fought during the war. So I think two things are important. Acknowledgement of what's happened and what the French government did, actually. It had to be said, and the drawing itself, it's sad, but justice has been done, and what happens after is another story. But it's not the end, because you did secure the restitution of a painting as well, which was the one you've mentioned, Nicolas de la Jalier's Portrait of a Lady as Pomona, which was at the Dresden State Art Collection. Can you tell us when Jules purchased that work and what was so special about it? He purchased it in the 20s. It's one of the most beautiful portraits by Alain Gillière. Largillière was a well-known and very classic style French painting. And this is very nice because it's the allegory of the everlasting love, the love that makes you always young. That's beautiful. The composition is very nice and there are fruits that symbolize femininity and also abundance. And it's a very sophisticated painting and what I really liked about it is that the look of this lady is very strong and very smart and very interesting, the way she looks straight at you. So he bought it, and then it was bought by a red flag lady, same kind of story than the Tepolo. She bought it for and sold it to the Reichsbank. You know, it was the job she found during the war. And she bought for the Reichsbank furniture, works of art, and beautiful paintings because they wanted to make the same decoration at the Reichsbank as they did in the Banque de France, in the French bank. So it was found in Germany in the 50s in the storage and then sent to a gallery in Berlin and then in Dresden. And they knew they had a gap in the provenance, so they put the painting on a website called Lost Art. That's where I found it. Just um, by looking on the net at Sammlung Jules Strauss, which means collection Jules Strauss in German. And I found it and I saw that the last collector was Jules Strauss. So I, I was a bit naive. I sent them a mail. I said, oh, okay, I think it belonged to my great-grandfather. I said, oh, la, 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 la. <laughs> Let's be cautious. Let's be cautious. They were a bit scared. I said, we put it on the website because we want to know more about it. But doesn't mean we want to to restitute it. So it took me five years of communications of trying to find all the elements of proof so that they could give it back. Why do you think museums are so reluctant to engage in restitution, even though everybody knows the scale of all the looting that took place during World War II, that what the Nazis were doing is not a secret. It's widely acknowledged. And there are all these international agreements that, like, yes, we need to make this right, that, like, it's gone on too long and 
we have an obligation. Why are museums dragging their feet? Why does it take someone five years from being like, hey, you got my painting to they actually give it back? You're right. We have these documents and we have this Accord de Washington, but they are not laws. So it's not the same. Each country has its own rules and it makes it a bit difficult because the criteria of decisions are not the same according to the museums. And of course, it's obvious that they prefer to keep a very nice painting rather to give it back. Sometimes it's a bit political. They don't want to appear like the bad guy, you know, who keep the stolen stuff, so they give it back. There's been such a long silence after the war. I speak about France. Maybe it's not the same in Germany. For the people who work nowadays in the museums, it's difficult to say, okay, the people who were there before me, they didn't do their job right. I must admit that they have difficulties with that, with acknowledging that they didn't behave in the right way. Yeah, well, it's just, it's so sad to me to think about this bureaucracy and the hesitancy of museums to part with things in their collection. It really leads to these really drawn out legal battles, which I don't think we have time for. One of the saddest parts in the book is you call your Aunt Nadine and you say, I think it's coming back. I think we're going to get it. And she says, I will no longer be around. And There's just not a lot of time for the people that are looking for restitution, like the older generation is passing. And how difficult is that for families to be going through this, knowing that people might not live to see the justice that they deserve? You're absolutely right. I think it's why we need to take into account the 70 years that have passed and nothing happened. I think we need to do it now because else everybody will have forgotten what happened. The archives that will become more and more difficult to search in, it has to be now because people will forget. And maybe there's a secret will of a few museums, not all of them, that people will forget and will not ask anymore. I heard in a meeting, I remember someone saying, you know that all these 2,000 paintings, if we don't find the, the owner, Let's say they will become part of the museum collection for real at last. I'm afraid they use a bit time against the victims. For your family, you started out with a list of 10 possible paintings. I don't think either of the works that you got back were on that list. So I'm wondering, are you still looking into those 10 works? Do you have other leads? Where do you see your research going moving forward? And are you hopeful for more restitutions? Well. I must admit that I'm not doing it full-time anymore because I don't know really what to look for. It's a bit complicated. I know there are other things that have been looted, but I have to do so much provenance work that I don't know how to start with because sometimes they are not very well-known paintings, so they are more difficult to find. When you have several paintings looking the same, it's difficult. I think I won't do that all my life at that reason and with that intensity. I don't stop, but I do it a bit more slowly. About the 10 paintings, it's an enigma. If anyone can help me on that, I still don't understand. So many years and still so many unsolved questions. It's yeah, a shame of that because someone told me, you know, in your books, there are still a lot of things that are not solved. And I said, okay, I'm sorry. It's just the truth. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just, just my experience. 
And I have a friend who writes, and she told me, why don't you imagine what happens? I can't do that. I mean, I don't lie. I just don't know what happens. So I have this secret hope that the great-granddaughter of a German soldier someday will tell me what happened because she finds in the archives something which will explain to me what happened, maybe. And that's why I wrote the book also, because I believe that it can help connecting with people and solutions and new ideas I haven't had yet. Well, I hope that that will be the case. What's next immediately, you're, you're going to be coming here to New York because the portrait of a lady at Pomona is being auctioned at Sotheby's. The book ends with you kind of hanging it in your apartment in Paris and you getting to bring that little piece of the collection home, which is so beautiful. And now it's a bit bittersweet that the painting is being sold. What was that decision like and how do you think the sale will go? Huh, this I really don't know because I'm not an art expert. When I listen to you, I think, oh my God, I don't want to be this person who's just a painting hunter, you know, just looking for some paintings to be sold afterwards. That's really not why I did all this. It's because I wanted to know the truth. I wanted to know what happened. So that's why I'm not going to keep on like that for so long. Yes, it's uh, it was nice because... I spent a year with the painting at home and it was really nice to have it in the middle of my family. And now I just wanted to follow it till the end of my adventure. So that's why I'm coming to New York and I don't know about the sale. I hope it will be the best, but I must say it's none of my business anymore. I did my work, I did my job. And the the proceeds will be split between you and 19 of your cousins? Is that correct? Yes, yes, correct. And I know your son in the book tells you he thinks that you should get a a bigger share because of all the work you've done. Is that going to happen or it will be even? To be honest, I understand what she said because I worked. It was really like a professional work I did, but I don't want to be paid by my family on looted art that belonged to them. I did it because I was really interested and I wanted to learn. So this is the way I've been paid. I I wrote the book, which was the most important thing for me because I've always wanted to write a book and I've been willing to write. But about the money, I, I can't do that. Yeah, that's never what this was about. And you started out, you didn't have a background in art. You didn't know much about your family's connection with art. How has your relationship with art changed learning so much about how much it meant to Jules and trying to track it all down. I'm very interested in the way the the paintings travel from people to people, from centuries to centuries. The provenance research, I even wondered if I wouldn't get a diploma and start a new job because I really like it. It's all the storytelling around the painting that is important for me. I still prefer books and storytelling rather than just looking at paintings without knowing anything about them. I need to know everything about them. That's what I like. Pauline, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I'm so glad that I was able to read this book and speak with you, and we'll be watching the results at Sotheby's with great interest. Thank you so much, Pauline. Thanks a lot. 
That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.